Welcome to the Arena Deckless Podcast. I'm Jerry Thompson, joined as always by Brian Gottlieb, the man who loves a Hallbreaker horror more than anyone. Hmm. I don't know how to respond to that. I, w- I will take. How about I, I take the title of man who believes in Hallbreaker horror more than anyone? Is that well, okay? Initially, maybe. You're saying everyone else is caught up at this point. I think so. I think so. Uh, maybe maybe overdoing it. Even. Okay. <laughs> have, have you heard anyone compare Hallbreaker horror to Emrakul, The Promised End? Mm, so not other than you, right. but so but, that that's a pretty big piece of support for this silly blue creature. I'm also not trying to listen to a whole lot of other people. Okay, <laughs> fair enough. So maybe just by choice, you've avoided other people saying the same thing. Yeah, it's it's uh, fine. I'm I'm sure other people will you know start parroting the things that the cool kids say. Maybe they'll see it on a TikTok. Or something. Not if it's coming from me. That's for sure. I'm too way too old for that. Well, stuff. Well, no. I, I mean, I don't think that you're on TikTok, man. But I'm saying, like, all it takes is like one person, <laughs> one TikToker, yeah, to copy you. Do, you. do you call them TikTokers? I don't know, man. Okay. I have no idea. Well, the show's off to a banging start as we alienate anyone who's under the age of like 35. Now they just no. Don't okay, so, so, us boomers talk about this. So stuff check anymore. this out. Check this out. When JSS started, you remember JSS? Uh, I did not participate in it, but obviously I've I've heard much about JSS. So Junior Super Series used to be for, you know, first it was 15 under, then it was 18 and under for kids to win college scholarships playing at like high level magic, right? Yes. So when when I started playing magic, JSS was around, but I was 16. So I couldn't play because it was 15 and under at that point. Okay. And then I think when I was like 19 or 20, they, like JSS had gone away and then they brought it back and now it was 18 and under. But awesome. I, I was still too old for it. Not yep. that I would have gone to college anyway, but it would have been cool to like beat up on some kids, right? <laughs> yeah, I actually know a few JSSers with just like a, a stockpile of theoretical scholarship money that they will never be spending. So. Right. So I, I also feel similarly about uh, like thing, things like Snapchat were like that that came out. And at that time, I was like, ah, I don't know. I'll try it. I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing or whatever. And then I just bounced off it real quick. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure it's just like I'm, I'm a little too old for this. And I think the same could be said for TikTok. Yeah, that's the sense I get. I'm cool with that. I I, want to gracefully age out of things. Like, I don't want to hang on for too long, I say, as I do this Magic the Gathering podcast and approaching the age of 40. But for a lot of other things, I don't want to hang on too long and overstay my welcome in the space. Well, we are white males, so it's... We're contractually obligated to have a podcast. That's true. That's true. maybe, Maybe it doesn't have to be about Magic the Gathering, per se. Hmm. What would you do a second podcast about? If I mean, let's make a theoretical world where you don't have to do any of the work, but there is another output from you. What would your second podcast be about? I don't know. Not wrestling. I know that much. Okay, that's where you got a starting point. You've, you've <laughs> ruled out one thing. Uh, am I going to have an audience? Because I'm not going to put out a podcast for like 30 people. Yeah, you can have an audience. Just assume you have a similar size audience to what you have now. You just get to make a new podcast about whatever topic you want. Like, what do you want to speak about that much? Uh, I mean, there there are like a lot of video game related interests that I could do. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, just playing a lot of rpgs or i have over the course of my life playing a lot of gotcha games now which are kind of like the new form of rpgs i suppose in a lot of senses yeah and i i think that there's a lot 
that I could talk about there and I could provide as far as like strategy and stuff is concerned. And I just don't feel like anyone cares to listen. You know, it's kind of similar to magic where like people play in different ways, but at least magic had like this runway for like very competitive folks. Mm, And again, commonality, right? It drove everyone to the same place. Exactly. So it's like, we can, we can get like the majority of, of our audience from people who at least participated in that system to some degree. But if I'm talking about video games, it's like such a broader base yeah. and people interact with it way differently. So I don't know. I, I like talking about min-maxing stuff, basically. Okay. Yeah, that's a good answer. What about just like a broad min-maxing podcast where you min-max different <laughs> things on a week-to-week basis? I mean, it's it's so messed up, though, because I, I, I min-max certain things and then... I guess that like frees up time for me to do other stuff, but like a lot of my time is spent just like doing nothing. And certainly a lot of that is because of like the pandemic and like I'm living in a place where I don't really know anyone and stuff like that. Right. Right. Where in theory I could do more with my time and I am min maxing the rest of my time poorly, but you know, maybe it's like I min max all the other stuff to get the most out of my free time. I don't know. Yeah. Min maxing is a slippery slope and it's hard to find out where your lines fall and like, I think the fact that you stop at some point is good. Like you, you can't let it spiral too far out of control. Otherwise you have maxed your min maxing and then you're, you're not doing a great job of anything at that point. In, in my early twenties, I decreed that I was not going to consume media anymore. Mm-hmm. Like no, no books, no TV shows, none of that crap. And I was just going to like work or play magic and just get better at magic. It worked. I mean, it's it, hard to it, argue with results. It did work. I, I I played like a ton of Magic Online and I got way better over the span of like a year and a half. And then I was also like working a ton because I, you know, like grew up poor and then had this opportunity to deal poker. And I was just like, well, I'm getting paid $40 an hour to do this. And I know the value of money, right? So I just want to do this as much as possible. So I'm yeah. like working 12 hour shifts dealing poker and stuff. Yep, uh, very similar experiences on my end, uh, not dealing poker, but like bartending very much worked the same way where just all of a sudden making a lot of money and then poker as well, playing yeah. poker it just, again, spirals out of control very quickly. Um, my second podcast, I think it would be about anime. I think I, I watch enough anime and it would always only be about the first two episodes of any given anime. <laughs> but every single show that comes out in a season, I would be able to make a podcast about the first two episodes of that. And maybe that's all people need. It's a way to get your inroads, find out if something is for you. It's, it's honestly not a bad idea. And I, I don't know. I, I think that there was definitely a point in my life where I could have done it now. But I, I think so, so many of the animes that come out are just like complete garbage. Yes, they are. And for some reason, I am still watching them. And I, I just don't know. I, I don't know when this happened to me. Well, that's bad. Let's keep our day jobs. Let's, let's go back to talking about magic. Okay. Oh, I, the, I'll cancel the anime podcast for now. Final, final thing to wrap up the min-maxing stuff, I guess, is that eventually I decided that maybe I deserve to be able to have fun. And then, Good, good for you. I'm yeah. glad you reached that conclusion. And, and I went back to you know, watching some TV shows or whatever. I, I had a couple of seasons of Veronica Mars to catch up on at that point. Good. Yeah. So you kind of rewarded yourself. Yeah, a little bit. I mean, obviously then some of it is spent watching the first two episodes of a terrible anime, but hmm. you know, well spent, I would say. I, I do think that that, that realization was pretty good because it was like, okay, I'm, 
you know, getting getting good at these two things, but I'm not really enjoying it. Right. And I deserve to enjoy happiness it. before everything. That's that's the core of my life philosophy. Yeah. So uh Holebreaker Horror Enjoyer Brian Gottlieb. Not making me happy. Holebreaker horror does not make me happy. Well, it, it probably did at first, right? When you're you're like playing your first like five or ten matches, and then you're just like, oh, this is gonna be a problem. No. It it lasted casting it once. I cast it one mm. time. Really, that was I, I swear to you, the first time I cast it, I immediately pulled out my Twitter machine and went to work. And I was like, this is messed up. Why does this exist with why does this card do so many things? Why is there so many lines of text? And each one invalidates the colloquially played game of Magic the Gathering in a different way, in a completely new way. And I I hate this card. This might be my least favorite card of all time. It's quickly getting to that point. Hallbreaker horror enjoyer. So uh, I I know. Well, I don't know how much these cards are, but it would be a good card for you to sign and give as like Patreon rewards. That's a fine idea. Uh, I saw on MTG stocks that it had rapidly risen. It was the like the number one most expensive riser today, from like four dollars to twelve dollars or something. Blows my mind that any uh newly produced rare could be twelve dollars so i feel like that's a little fictional but well the mythics are pretty bad right mythics can be bad and it's still hard though it's so hard for a rare to get that much that much of the equity wrapped up in a pack but uh, anything's possible i guess especially people keep playing for them in their deck list so. well that's true uh there are there are five for sale on star city games for 7.99 too rich for my blood yeah i'm gonna wait for that to come down off it okay so you you must not like smurfing then uh hmm it de- it really depends it really de- if, if the smurfing experience can open up a different way to play the game then i don't hate it and oh, like no i i just like getting, like pub like pub stomping i don't know what that is but like getting getting on a new account and then just like playing the spikiest deck and just no, like i i hate that I absolutely hate that. Well, first of all, Arena basically forces you to do that if you take any kind of downtime. I know. It'll put you in the bronze queue anyway, so. Yeah, but I when I'm playing Magic, I'm trying to learn, not not just, like, beat people, because there are no rewards for beating people. But, like, right. you know, starting, like, a, a new Clash Royale account or mm. something was something I did at one point because I was like, I have, like, a much better fundamental understanding of what's going on here now than than when i started right yeah no i i play tft that way sometimes but it's more about if i am in this space i can explore more inventive ways to play the game as opposed to just like playing it the correct way because my fundamentals are so good that i will i will win anyway it doesn't matter well then you're not really getting anything from the exploring thing it's like yeah i could play bad decks in no, no. <laughs> in gold on arena and and win a bunch but that's not exactly fun for me i'm not I, I, I get what you're saying. It's different in TFT, though, because you kind of need to see the things happen to understand exactly how they're going to interact with each other and like okay. understand the power input. And a lot of times things I've done at like a lower level, it's like, OK, this actually is good enough. This can work against good competition. But how do you know if your competition's not good? I don't know. Whatever. Do do, do your TFT podcast somewhere else, buddy. OK, we'll do. All right. Uh, yeah, I, I feel like I, I enjoyed playing Hullbreaker Horror and now I'm kind of looking for ways to beat it which is sort of difficult um i i guess we can talk about that at a later point but like 
No, I, I want to talk about it now. Let's let's lead the show with Holebreaker horror stuff. I think that's a good approach because it's going to inform so much that goes on around it. And yes, I, I am fine with the conversation of like, well, I'm, what does this card do? How do you beat it? I wanted to start with like how how you built your first iteration of the deck, the other stuff that you tried. I know that you wrote about it on yeah. Star City this week yep. and you had a bunch of deck lists in there. But like, what do you feel is the best way to build around this thing? And I don't know, you know, just like what, what kind of pieces are you, are you looking for? Really? Uh, you, you brought up, you know, like the, the four hole breaker horrors and I feel like that's pretty wrong and you should maybe only have three, obviously it depends on your deck and what you're doing. Like the Simic list you posted, for example, played four, and I thought that that was right, but right. Right. Know. So, so, I posted basically five deck lists in my article. The first was a Simic list that was basically saying, okay, I have identified Holebreaker Horror as a messed up card. How do you push it the hardest? And to me, that answer is ramp. You play it ahead of curve and just like a bunch of cheap spells surrounding it. And you do the same thing every game. You accelerate to this Holebreaker Horror. Then you play some spells, reset your opponent's battlefield, lock them out of the game ride the whole breaker horror to victory and like this is what i would say the deck is like pretty fundamentally flawed there's a lot of things it doesn't interact with well its removal is just bounce it's using what is that card called banishing tide or something like that where consuming tide consuming the, tide that the might two be you, you each player yeah. chooses a permanent bounce the rest you draw a card if they have more cards yeah. i actually i like that card in theory yeah yeah it does a job in, in practice. It obviously has holes. You'll find spots where like you play this thing and they leave their best threat on the battlefield and it doesn't catch you up, which is obvious on its face. It was always going to do that. Um, but you need some kind of catch up mechanism and that's the best you can get when you're just doing hard Simic stuff. But Holebreaker Horror is so good that it doesn't matter that the rest of your deck is sort of inefficient. And that's not to say I think it's a really good deck. It's just an exploration of like how powerful is this card actually? Right. The answer is is very um my transition from i won't say it was my transition because the starting point for me was just building is it decks just because the is it core is so good we knew what it was capable of and i built new looking is it decks with the assumption that like we were just going to end up back at alrin's epiphany with the addition of holebreaker horror into it because it's going to be such a strong tool in the mirror and maybe some other places as well so that's just where we we're going to settle and then at some point i just realized well holebreaker horror actually supplants alrin's epiphany because the edge is so big and for the most part this isn't entirely true but for the most part you just would rather play holebreaker horror in a lot of matchups and the difference between playing like the raw alrin's epiphany and the raw holebreaker horror against something like mono green it's night and day i mean it's just not a card that they can realistically compete with anymore and there's not a lot of ways they can adapt to get stronger against it. Now, other decks will adapt. But again, it brings me back to that point of like, well, how do you actually interact with this card favorably? And the first thing everyone said was like divide by zero. And you, you, as soon as you heard that, you were like, like, this no. doesn't work. This, and, <laughs> and you're right. It doesn't work. All it is is you've gotten like this mana disadvantage. But if your opponent isn't punishing you, on a turn where you're trying to hold up Holebreaker Horror and they're trying to just hold up Divide by Zero, you just get to repeat, repeat the play pattern going on to the next turn. So that very quickly uh, became clear to me that that was not going to work. And that means you're like forced into playing spot removal and spot removal against this thing. Like I can't tell you how many times I didn't play any creatures through the entire game. 
I was playing the card control. And so I'm not being pressured. I just don't play my whole breaker horror into like whatever black white control that I'm playing against. And I sit back and I eventually reach 10 mana and I decide end of turn, play my whole breaker horror and they have six mana and they go vanishing verse. And I go, uh, okay, well, you know, fading hope your thing and return my whole breaker to hand and they fire another vanishing verse. And I'm like, uh, okay, we'll protect the whole breaker here. And then they have another vanishing verse. And I'm like, well, I, I just have another spell. What do you want from me? This is not going to work out in your favor. Now they've exhausted their entire hand, wasted their entire entire turn and had their board reset. So it just always has to be backed up by such tremendous pressure that otherwise spot removal is not going to matter whatsoever. And it's why the card is redeemable against something like brutal Cathar, because like, you just fading hope the Cathar and get one turn with it, and they can't come back from that. It's too big of a swing. Um, so after doing the linear stuff, I did a bunch of control stuff. There was the Izzet control deck. I built an Esper control deck, which was fine. Uh, I think Azorius control is probably the best way to build control right now because you do get the spot removal, so you can play a little bit against the horrors. But again, that's not an answer. It's just like at least you have some interaction and the games you play where it's like a control mirror and both players have hole breaker horrors. So stupid. It's just beyond stupid that we ever would consider this as a good way to end those type of games. It's not. You get into these locked positions where you're just bouncing back and forth. It's a great way to end a game when one player has access to hole breaker horror. When everyone has access to hole breaker horror, it's just a disaster, top to bottom. Uh, and then I finally closed out with a Demir Sacrifice deck. And this is where I think it got really interesting because there's no good reason for the Demir Sacrifice deck to be playing Holebreaker Horror. Like it's it's not really core to the idea, but it just works incredibly there because it's such an absurd card. And you do have things like your Deadly Disputes, your Shambling Gas to ramp a little bit. So you naturally have that. You have cheap interaction, cheap spells. And Holebreaker Horror just goes off sometimes, especially when they've already had to deal with your early game of, you know, Fell Scorpion, Shambling Gas, all these little bits of value. The fact that you've been doing this the whole time and then you get to Holebreaker Horror, it's, it's just a nightmare for opposing players to deal with. I think that... In, in the case of like the Simic deck and the Demir deck, ramping into Hullbreaker Horror is viable if it also means that you're not going to run out of gas. Mm -hmm. And Simic is going to have a tougher time with that because I don't know if you have like, you know, memory deluge type of stuff. And it's like, that's, that's that's one way to keep it going. But the the Demir deck is like super low curve plus Hullbreaker. And then you also have a lot of uh, learn stuff. So you have a bunch of resources, you have the deadly yeah. disputes to draw a bunch of cards and it feels like you, you probably should not run out of spells and you're going to have a bunch of cheap spells too. So you're going to be able to do the things like, you know, play horror on eight and have a mana or two up to protect it from something. And then that's usually lights out. Yeah. I want to loop back around to the, the Emrakul stuff that I started talking about in the beginning of the podcast, just about how horror functions. The, the reason Emrakul, and I wrote about this in my article, the reason Emrakul was a problem, problem card was not only the fact that it invalidated the turns that came before it was played. And it did so by the Mind Slaver effect being uncounterable. You got to use all your opponent's stuff and basically reset their battlefield. So no matter what they did up to that point, unless their hand lined up in a very specific way, Emrakul probably erased all of it. But it was worse than that because the effect of Emrakul on their next turn was that they now have no resources because you use them all, hopefully. Uh, and that means that the future turns of the game were also decided by Emrakul. 
So it's just that one turn. That's all that matters. And we saw decks built like that in that era. It was just about maximizing Emrakul, and correctly so. I think Holebreaker Horror does many of the same things in an uncounterable fashion. It resets your opponent's battlefield very, very easily, very efficiently. And then it locks your opponent out of expensive spells, certainly. Probably removal. Uh, probably most of their threats because they're not attacking through a seven eight. It just closes down so much space of the game. It's such a bad card to have exist, and I I, I didn't think I would find a card that I hated as much as Alrin's <laughs> Epiphany, but I I really think I did. Yeah, it's it's wild. I, I I think the saving grace kind of is that you know you talked about uh, thinking the format would eventually converge on Hallbreaker plus Epiphany just because they're like the two best things, but they they really don't interact that well together. Like drawing a Hallbreaker and a Galvanic iteration is not very good. True. You know, I mean, I, I guess it's like five mana, two random spells to like bounce some stuff or whatever, but you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. You can do a lot better. I think that if you're maximizing for Hallbreaker Horror, you would not play Epiphany. If you're maximizing for Epiphany, you play Hallbreaker as like, a one of top end thing just because it's like good on its own can like solo people or it's good in the mirror and that's it and so i i guess like the best versions of either one of these things yeah it's like they they don't make each other better really yeah so you can argue that holebreaker actually does a very good job of targeting alrin's epiphany like kind of the cards it beats up the best are expensive sorcery speed stuff that you just get to lock out of the game but this is not the answer i wanted like when i wanted epiphany beat up on doing it this way just it 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 creates the exact same metagame with a different a different coat of paint and it's it's been painful i have i have not enjoyed the standard iteration i will say that and i don't see any reason to hide it it just feels like exactly the same standard we were playing before with a, a new banner banner waiver that's somehow even more annoying to play against cool yeah i know i i hate coming to this cast especially like we're so early in the format and i know everyone wants to come and like hear about cool new decks we're working on and things we're excited about and i mean i'm excited about the learning experience like what i've figured out in the early weeks of the format it it has been an interesting process i just don't like the gameplay of the games and it, it stinks to get to that point so so quickly yeah, I mean, things can change for sure. They can. They can. So we we have that going for us. It is still early, but yeah, I mean, you know, good formats generally don't have like these these outlier like frustrating cards in them. Yeah. And I think your your Emrakul comparison, while certainly not like a one to one comparison, is fairly apt. Where at, at least in this instance. You know, you you have to untap with the whole breaker a lot of the time, although sometimes when you've been playing the game, you've been trying to stabilize and they're down to like their last two creatures and you just like cast it and eat one of their attackers. The game is functionally over at that point. So, yes. you know, in those situations, you don't necessarily need to untap with it. But to to really take full control and to like maximize it, you do need to untap with it. Emrakul is just like cast it. It's good, you know. Um, but they, they are very similar in that like, if you do get to do the thing that the card wants you to do, all the stuff that happened before doesn't matter. And then all the stuff that happens after is it's scripted effectively. Yes. So yes. yeah, you're, you're definitely right about that. And I really dislike those things just straight up. And that's, that's what like 
the fellow Darcy Healy combo felt like too. It's like, oh, we're playing this nice game and then it just ends randomly. Mm-hmm. And why is this a thing that exists? Yeah, so I, I talked about the impetus for why is this a thing that exists? And I do think from a design standpoint, it's a good theory. Like you certainly want things that put a time limit on the game, but you want them to be a, one, a soft time limit. And two, if like you're really looking for that, it's got to be at a higher cost than seven. Like it, it can't be seven. Seven is achievable on turn five in a multitude of decks. I mean, especially with like unexpected windfall in the format, which man, did I, I, I'm going to toot the horn. I, did I tell you that card was going to do something messed up? All it no, takes is didn't. a reason to get to seven mana. And it was very clear that that was going to uh, change the shape of the metagame. It continues to do so because it just found a new friend to play with and one that maybe it plays with even a little bit better. Yeah, I, I think so too. You're you're definitely right about it. Absolutely. Uh, so for the spiky folks out there, what is the best way to build this deck currently? I think it is. Is it? I think. I, I am surprised with how good my Azorius list has been. And it's weird because it's sort of... It looks like an older magic deck, I would say. Like yeah. it's, it's sweepers, uh, you know, card draw, a planeswalker. But then it has this Hullbreaker Horror at the top end. And the reason this deck supports it so well is that it does exhaust your opponent's resources so efficiently. Uh, it, it plays a very pure control game early on with good removal, a solid Planeswalker in Teferi. I've been actually impressed with how well Teferi has played in so many situations. Uh, life gain really has mattered a bunch when I'm trying to do a pure control setup and just like get to the point where I know my Holebreaker Horror is good enough. That's what it really comes down to is like, if you're playing a Holebreaker Horror under pressure, it's not the same card. And does it bail you out of pressure in a bunch of spots? Absolutely. But if it has a weakness, it's like, uh oh, I'm going to die if I don't have a blocker here. I'm going to play this and hope they don't have the removal spell, despite the fact that I haven't done anything to draw through a removal spell all game. And I think you have decks that look to do exactly that, that we'll talk about later. Yes. Um, which is good. I, I think that's the right approach. Uh, and I expect to see more of that, which means get ready for <laughs> linear aggro versus uh, big blue stuff round two. But still, the, the Azorius stuff does all this and also just has this crazy ramp thing going on with Teferi that even if you're not getting like the maximum, oh, I have a Celestis and I'm untapping a land, so I'm getting plus two from Teferi. Just getting plus one from your Planeswalker when you have a threat like Holebreaker Horror. Now, granted, this means you're moving to sorcery speed because of Teferi's timing. Uh, but it still doesn't matter because the card is so powerful. And the fact that you're so good at reloading, you're so good at sweeping your opponent's battlefield, you just won't be in desperate situations. And like if you Teferi plus played out your Holebreaker, then they have to answer the Holebreaker, they have to answer Teferi. And this assumes that I don't like they haven't been stymied by your sweepers, by your removal spells. So I think the Azorius stuff deserves more attention than it's gotten thus far. But I understand why the draw is to is it because these cards are just so powerful. The deck functions so well. And uh, Windfall is just absolutely everything. It, it, it lets you have the ramp, lets you find the card more consistently. It moves at instant speed to take advantage of the card. It finds you more stuff to immediately play when you get into those spell chain type situations. So it's not hard to see why it's found a quick home alongside the Izzet cards. I got a couple questions. I have hopefully answers. All right. You have, you have three Field of Ruins in your deck. Yeah. I think that for a pure control deck like this, 
you need that many to kill Faceless Saber. Okay. Uh, a lot of the Izzet decks you see just like trimming down to two or, or fewer in some instances, right? And yeah, even in the last format, I always thought people played way too few Field of Ruins, and I didn't really understand why. Yeah, and I, I think it can do that when they're like, well, I'm going to tap out for Lear, I'm going to tap out for Hallbreaker Horror. It's like you really, you don't need to control Faceless Haven all that much because you have a different plan. And your your deck is like, well, I'm like, you know, doom scarring and fateful absencing things. You're probably going to have to kill uh, a Faceless Haven at some point, right? Yes. So you have three colorless lands in your mana base. Uh, treasure vault yes no can we, can we get one in here somehow is that doable I, it certainly crossed my mind and i i don't know is the answer to that I, I won't be mad at anyone who puts one in there i think it's a fine choice and i understand why you want it but like i said i don't think you need to work that hard to make teferi good in this deck and that's really what the appeal is is that you're never going to find yourself in that position where your your mana base is doomed because of your treasure vault and doom scar is a card that requires a lot of your mana base so that's true yeah, yeah. Any, any any treasure vault that you play i would probably look at your list and be like that should be a white source and even now looking at your list you have 14 that's close i mean that's definitely on the list especially when you think about pathways um yeah now you want to count field as a white source i i don't know not for doomscar so yeah i mean it it does count eventually same with celestis because you can ramp into turn right. five doomscar but yep i don't know i spiked i spiked the treasure vault one time and it felt good you know it I mean? does i agree with you I've, I've done it before as well it feels very good uh, i i think it's wrong for a few different reasons, but it's still a possibility. The other thing that also goes against Treasure Vault is you're playing Thirst for Discovery in Azorius, but not in Izzet. And I understand that Izzet has a lot of DFCs and a lower land count for a lot of reasons. Mm-hmm. And that makes sense. But I think that a couple copies of Thirst in Izzet is pretty solid. Uh, okay. I mean, I don't I don't object to that. I, I think all of these lists, and I talked about this in my article too, these are meant to be frameworks for sure and that's the thing about like how we used to build control decks is you get these frameworks and you have all these options and pieces and in particular the esper one which is my least favorite of these decks but you see how many options you have in terms of removal you can play vanishing verse you can play infernal grasp you can play lash of malice as far as sweepers you have meat hook massacre you have shadows verdict you have crippling fear they all have holes but you can cover a lot with a good spread of them especially considering that you're a memory deluge deck and you'll see a lot of these cards throughout the course of a game assuming you're able to extend the game to any reasonable length so uh, I think there really is something to be said for having all these control options. And again, it's what makes me so sad that cards like Epiphany and Holebreaker Horror exist because there's such cool pieces underneath it all and so many interesting decisions to be made. And every time I queue up not trying to like maximize Holebreaker Horror, I'm like, why? Why am I doing this? I don't I don't understand why I'm purposely forcing myself to play a worse game. So. I think, Frustrating. I think the thing that would make this more palatable is if it was just like bounce another or or I guess like even just only an opponent's thing. There's you know? yeah, there's so many pieces of text on this card where you're like, well, couldn't it have slightly less uh, toughness? So maybe you can combine two removal spells and take it down or couldn't it not bounce itself? And yeah, I it it does it all. It really does. 
you know, if it's not going to be counterable, does it have to have flash too? Like just let it be played <laughs> at sorcery speed. So. Yeah. I mean, a lot of those things had both of those for a while. And then Nezahal, I think, was like the first one. And it was just like, no, this is fine. Yeah. And you talked about how Nezahal was such an important card in Historic prior to the release of Hullbreaker Horror, where that will also be an important card in Historic, I believe. Um, but Nezahal is an example of how you do this effect right. Like it certainly puts a clock on any game being played against control decks, but it's not invalidating everything. You can fight through a Nezahal. You can pressure it a little bit. Uh, certainly decks that aren't just trying to extend the game are very, very happy to see a Nezahal and just attack around it, you know? So I, I don't know why we had to go this far. All right. Non-Hallbreaker Horror things, or uh, as I kind of look at it, Tier the, two? Huh? Nothing. What? <laughs> I said tier two oh, for hey, non-Hallbreaker hey, Horror stuff. Dude. Sorry. That's it's messed up. It's the truth, though. Uh, I think that there are ways to... Uh, maybe not maybe not farm these decks, but uh, certainly try to exploit them a little bit. And that's sort of what I've been doing with okay. trying to figure out, you know, there's so many good vampires, right? Yes. It's like, there's gotta be something here. And one of the things that I kept going back to is like, we need another good one drop. And I, I felt the same way for like a lot of the, the wolf stuff too. And uh, Voldaren Epicure just like slid in towards the end of preview season, uh, which is R11 ETB opponent takes one and you make a blood. Yep. And that gets your vampire socialites on board pretty early uh makes it so this thing is like not just an embarrassing one one the blood tokens help for like blood tithe harvester and voldaren bloodcaster falcon wrath forebear like all these things like that matters a lot and then it just like combines with a bunch of different forms of chip damage to to get people in like the mid to late game and it kind of just like made everything come together and made me feel like I could just build it like an actual beatdown deck. And that is working for you against against these go big strategies reliably. Uh, pretty much. Like there are there are definitely instances where you know they get to clear your board like once or yeah. twice while still also miraculously being at like a high enough life total and like you haven't disrupted them at all and. You know, then then they can kind of take over, but it's never really because of Holebreaker Horror, because we talked about this a bunch, and this is this is where it comes up, this is where it matters, where if you're like putting pressure on them, they are generally forced into a situation where they have to cast it where it's exposed. Yes. And then when you infernal grasp it, power word kill, valor stance, whatever you have that actually cleanly kills this thing, then a lot of the time they were relying on that to, to help them stabilize. Because no, I, especially in is it so many of the cards like fading hope or whatever, it's like just buying you time to get to that point, right? Yeah, I think you're exactly right. And and some of that is how these is it decks are being built right now. If there is a default version of this deck, uh, there's one I have seen a bunch on Magic Online. Basically, it's like four Hullbreaker Horror, two Leer, one Smoldering Egg, and it four out a preliminary, it won a standard challenge, and Lists like that have no sweepers in the main. So there is that to lean on. And if they're, if they're doing that, I am all for this way of punishing them because they will need Holebreaker Horror to be able to catch up. They're relying on like Leer removal, which when you're going as wide as you are in this Vampire's deck, I don't buy it. I don't, I don't think it's going to work. They would need some kind of, you know, Cinderclasm, uh, 
burn down the house, go wide type effect where they can just clean up everything at once. Uh, and it's also a re reason why I, when I started building the Holberger Horror Control decks, I wanted to have a bunch of stuff in my quiver because it was clear to me that like some versions of it were going to be exploitable by certain forms of linear aggro. Uh, any any deck that can just removal spell your Holberger Horror after already putting you at a sufficiently low life total is going to have a hard time. So I wonder, uh, obviously I'm not trying to use this as a point to criticize the deck because why, why would you care about the Azorius matchup? But I wonder how something like Azorius is going to line up against this deck. Uh, you know, there's a the bit of life game from Teferi to kind of invalidate some of that chip damage. There's the real sweeper effects, uh, good spot removal. So I, I think this deck could actually be a little bit softer in those spots. But as far as a way to challenge is it, I, I love it. It makes perfect sense. Your Azorius deck has more field of ruins for the creature lands too, because when you're trying to, yep. you know, sweep away mono green, mono white vampires, they're probably going to have a, a creature land waiting. And having field of ruin is, it, it's such a cleaner way of dealing with it than just like, oh, I hope I also have an instant speed removal spell on top of this later. You know, yeah. Uh, vampires has been good for me in these matchups, and there were. Like when I started playing on ladder, I was definitely like, oh, like, you know, none of these lists that are getting posted and shared and stuff have sweepers main deck. So it might not even be a thing that I have to worry about. But I don't know, people on ladder can just do whatever they want, you know? Like I, I'm, pretty, I'm pretty sure I have not played against uh, an is it opponent that didn't have like a burn down the house main deck. Okay. And I would. I mean, yeah, that's of how course. I would build this. Of course. And it's just like, you know, maybe that's like yesterday's news, right? Is that these were the lists that were doing well. And now these players have adapted to either, you know, maybe they just expect more aggro on ladder or, or whatever. Uh, but yeah, basically everyone has some amount of sweepers main deck, which I think is completely reasonable. It should be where they're going. And you just have to figure out ways to play around it. Just like don't overextend Falcon Wrath forebear is the, the best way to deal with it because mm -hmm. you, you just, get in situations where it's the turn they have to sweep you and make sure that you get to return this three one, you know? So maybe doing some less efficient, like blood stuff to set up uh, for that turn uh, in, in some of the earlier turns, you know, and trying to have like a, a creature land in reserve also helps a lot. And there have definitely been games where I get swept and I'm just like, well, I'll attack you for seven. Yep. Yeah, powerful thing for these aggro decks to have access to. Uh, while we're we're talking vampires, tell me a little bit about how this lines up with the other linear aggro stuff that's in the format, specifically mono white and mono green. I want to talk about those decks more in detail as we go through the cast, but I, I want to know about those matchups now. Yeah, mono white matchup is kind of a joke because like so so my deck is uh nine one drops. 12 twos, seven threes, and then some interaction. I think that's right. And in, in 25 mana sources. And their deck is basically the same thing where it's like ones, twos, and threes, some interaction, but like your stuff is just better on average uh, across the board. Whereas they have like some brutal cathars, maybe and elite spellbinders. You know, they're doing like the, the taxes thing, but like not really having uh, their, their bodies be super impressive. Yeah, a, so, bit, a bit more value in their deck. Is that fair to say? Yeah, except it's like value that doesn't line up well against you. You okay, know, it's yeah. like they they elite by a spellbinder your your one or two mana card that you just eventually get to play anyway. And right, brutal Cathar against 
seven spot removal spells isn't great. Plus you have blood tithe harvester to kill it at some point. And I don't know, you, like they play usher, you play epicure and like get a blocker, but also a blood out of the deal, which can translate into something later. So everything like lines up really poorly for them. And then you get a one-sided pyroclasm after sideboard. So it, it basically yeah, comes down, bad. basically comes down to like, make sure you're able to kill Adeline because that's the one thing where it's like actually relevant stats and can snowball the game. And then you also weirdly have to deal with faceless Haven in some of the spots, like maybe all your cards trade and they have this four, three that's pounding you. And that can be tough, tough to deal with at some point. Okay. Uh, just going back to, to your deck. I notice you are now on four Florian, Voldaren, Scion. When we were in preview season, obviously a different different game at that point. We didn't have as many vampires. You weren't a huge fan of this card. I wonder how it's been for you now. I started with fewer copies, and yeah. it's been very good. I mean, against Mono White, 3-3 three, three first strike is, it just like shuts down all their stuff, which is kind of funny. And... They, they do have like some removal spells and everything, but it's really not permanent a lot of the time. You know, usually it is Brutal Cathar. That's, that's the card that they have the most copies of. So at some point, you're going to be able to free that thing up again. I, I dislike all the stuff that I, you know, said about it previously, where it's like you play it, you don't get like immediate value out of it. And in some instances, that doesn't matter. Against control decks, it's just like whatever, because all your stuff is must kill. And yep. then if something slips through the cracks, which is kind of likely considering you're super low mana curve, you know, you're playing a bunch of one drops against their two mana removal. It's not that uncommon to just be like, you know, play Florian on turn four or five attack for one or two, and then you get a shot at getting an extra card. So it's, it's been a lot better than I thought in practice for a, a three mana card that doesn't have like any immediate impact. I think like the impact that you get is against the creature decks where you just have a first striking body and their removal. Yep. Yeah, I, I think it's a perfect curve topper given how the curve has filled out now for this deck. And uh, it's sort of exactly what you want from that slot. And I played a little bit of Vampire's last set. Thought the deck was okay-ish, uh, but it, it's really rounded out its threat suite so, so well and gotten so much stickier than it was previously. So I, I think the context for this card is completely different now. And I I thought it was good when I played it in the last set. I'm not surprised to hear it's gotten even better at this point. Yeah, before it was like maybe you you draw your Jackal Pup and then mm -hmm. you play a two drop. Your first creature probably dies against most opponents. And then you play a Florian that's just like naked and it's like kind of embarrassing, you know? But now... You have such a lower mana curve and you have more one drops, which means that you're more likely to connect with it early. And then when you you are connecting it in small doses, like say you play it on turn four and you're like, I, if I either hit a land or a one drop, I can cast a thing. And now your curve is a lot lower. Well, then, you know, you're more likely going to be able to get a relevant card off it versus like you hit them and reveal a clunky four drop at some point. And you're just like, yep. oh, I can't really do it. Yeah, and I love that you are cognizant of that situation throughout your deck. Like, Immersion Predator, great card, doesn't belong in this deck whatsoever. I completely agree with the way you've built it here. And it, it was one of the weakest cards when I, when I was playing Vampires previously. So I, I don't think the context of the format has changed. That's the point I keep coming back to. It's still you want to be linear, small. As soon as you're floating to that middle, that four mana cost, you're going to get outscaled if you try and invest your mana that way. It's, it's kind of messed up because 
Vampires has so many good four drops. There's like two black four drops yeah. in the set that are like flyers and pretty good. There's Soren, there's uh, Angie or Anya again. I, I still don't know how to pronounce it. And you could splash uh, Edgar if you wanted to. I think that that'd be completely fine too because you have like the pathways, the dual lands, Volarian Estate, whatever. And just at the end of the day, it's like there are some specific matchups where I want like a four drop like a specific four drop, but like it's just better, cleaner. Your deck functions better when you just don't play with them in the main deck. I agree with you. Too clunky. Fading hope. Divide by zero. No, thank you. A, a bunch of reasons uh, that have only been amplified. I already felt that way in the last format, but it's it's more intense now. So, so uh, mono green matchup is worse than mono white. Part of that has to do with all their stuff is so big and a Seekers Chariot is very, very good. Mm. And you have these sideboard pyroclasms that are like decent to unplayable against them, depending on how they're drawn. Depending on their draw, yeah. So yeah, I think that's a, that's a lot of Mono Green's pinch though, is that like all their removal is like, well, this is either perfect or it does absolutely nothing. Right. So you board in a couple. Uh, sometimes I'll bring in the third on the draw or whatever, hope that, they just play a bunch of like Sculptor of Winners and Ascendant Pack Leaders or whatever. Uh, but if, if they just go like Werewolf Pack Leader into Old Girl Troll, you're just like, God damn it. Like <laughs> it, it also like doesn't deal damage to Faceless Havens. You can't trade up with it, you know? Uh, yeah. Real problems. So if if I specifically wanted to address that matchup and like still, it's it's not a terrible matchup. It might, it might be the worst matchup, I guess, but it's still not terrible. It, I, I would look into maybe like the four mana five, six flyer uh, or just more power word kill type of stuff in general. Okay. Well, I, I think the good news for you is that I view mono green is trending down. Uh, I think white in particular has gotten better against mono green, which bodes poorly for them because they sort of needed that matchup to go their way. And I also think is it has gotten better against mono green. So that's not to say I think mono green is out of the format or completely dead and done. I just think it has it has lost some where everyone else has gained some. I also think it's trending down, which is why I don't have a lot of stuff for it in my sideboard. Yeah. So but, so why don't we talk about those decks? If if you're set on vampires, is there anything else you want to say about vampires? Uh it's good. And more people should be playing it. Okay. And you should play it like it's mono white and not like it's some mid-range crappy Rakdos deck. Yeah. Don't worry, there's a mid-range section of the podcast coming. We're going to talk all about that. I but, don't believe you. But for now, I want to talk about the other two linear aggro decks being Mono White, Mono Green. Let's start with Mono White because I, I do think it's the one that has proven itself more at this point. There's a lot of Mono White all over every event you could possibly see thus far. It's done very well, and it's basically been built sort of how we expected you max thalia you max uh hopeful initiate which has been great by the way i i have been pleased with that card awesome card yeah and uh picked up a few valorous stances again another card that we were optimistic could see a little bit of play and that's really about it otherwise it's the same deck it was before but those are big ads and i, I think they're big ads in like I said, specifically the mono green matchup. I think you got so much edge and you wouldn't think Thalia would be a really strong card against mono green, but a lot of their stuff that matters against you is the stuff that is non-creature. I mean, specifically Asika's Chariot moving from four to five, I think is a really big deal 
for that matchup in particular. Uh, and, you know, you get more points there against Chariot with Hopeful Initiate, too, and Sizing with Hopeful Initiate. So all this stuff is just making the matchup a little bit better for Mono White. And it still does the same thing it always did against Is It, just try and go fast. And sometimes that's good enough. Yeah, Mono White got a significant amount of upgrades. So you, you can play like the really low to the ground, like Paladin class one. I still don't really recommend that. I, I would much rather just play like the good cards. Uh, just be a little bit more robust. And Valorant stands in, I think, maybe every matchup except Vampires and maybe the Mirror is just like an upgrade to Fateful Absence because against Is It, I mean, you you get to kill Hallbreaker Horror with either card, but uh, this one can also just like protect a thing from a sweeper, which could be yep. good enough. And yep. then, yeah, just instant speed, like no downside removal thing against Mono Green is awesome. And sometimes the games do go, go on there and like giving them a clue can be kind of bad. So Stance has been pretty nice and... It's one of the reasons why I would consider playing Mono White is because you do have the game plan of like pressure plus I have a thing to actually get Hallbreaker Horror out of the way, whereas Mono Green just doesn't. Very true. And I would I would like to see these decks go even a little bit harder into your Hallbreaker answer suite and and push those Valor stances a little bit further. But I'm sure that will come with time. And if you find you have to find a balance, you have to still be pressuring them. You can't fall too far off that pace. Otherwise, it won't matter. Like we said, that you will take extra time with setup and, you know, or these decks will evolve and they'll start looking more like a, a pure control deck, something like an Azorius. And then I, I don't think that's going to be a good plan in that instance either. But for the time being, where people are trying to do this as a stuff, mostly, I, I really like the idea of having pressure plus Valor stance. Yeah, the, the problem is when, when I look at it, and especially with Mono White in the mix, I'm just like, well, Vampires is a better Mono White because I think you're better against the control decks. You're certainly better in like the creature matchups. Maybe you're worse against Mono Green, but like whatever. I mean, you have, you have so much good uh, interaction for winning the creature mirrors, and then your sideboard gets to have like duress type stuff. I mean, it's just awesome. Yeah. A, a nice adjustment for sure. A uh, new way to do linear aggro. And I, I think there'll be moments for all of them, but your point for vampires being the way to go now makes a bunch of sense to me. So that brings us to mono green, I guess, and, and how this deck has changed. The answer is not a lot. Uh, send in pack leader like we expected, our number one card in the set. I mean, I would obviously have Hullbreaker Horror number one now just because it's, I think its impact is that huge. But I don't hate putting Ascendant pack leader up there because it it did make these decks better. And we knew these decks were going to continue to be part of the format and maybe gave a little bump to some other, you know, werewolf type synergies as well. So that has delivered other card, which I liked during preview season, maybe not enough. Uh, Ovenwald Oddity. Have you played against this card yet? Yeah. The four mana four four trample haste. Yep. Basically, a, basically no other text, even though it has other text. Yeah, big transform on the back. I mean, I, I've I've seen it come up, but you're right. It's mostly about four four trample haste for four. Very nice stats, and I, I think haste is at a premium presently. It's a way to again create more faster pressure. So I support the addition of Wolvenwald Oddity. It's good. There it's, there were matchups where I was considering sideboarding like Frog Hemoth or whatever it's called. Yep. And then same. It's, that's a five mana card. It basically does the same thing. So yep. 
no, I think this was a good pickup for the deck. And, you know, the deck remains solid, but I, I do think it has gotten worse against Mono White, which is one of its already sort of split matchups. I, I think depending on how you structured your deck, it could go either way. I often felt like it was Mono White leading, but I know a lot of people who felt like it was Mono Green leading, and it probably had more to do with how we were building our decks than anything else. Yeah, I, th I think Mono White's upgrades are just so huge, though, because... I mean, Mono White does this against Vampires too, where they often get to start as the aggressor no matter what, and then it's up to like Vampires or Mono Green to catch up. Mm -hmm. And in a lot of instances uh, with Mono Green, like the, the curve is just like a little bit too high and you really need to get into double spell territory as soon as possible. And then something like Athalia, even just like adding a mana to your Blizzard Brawl can just like completely mess you up. And then... Yeah. You try and stabilize behind a, a four toughness thing, and now they just have like clean answer and valor stance and everything. So it's it's a lot harder than it used to be. Yeah, I, I'm with you on that. Uh, I I would not be playing mono green right now, and that's not like a hatred of mono green. I played a lot of mono green in the last format. I thought it was quite good, uh, but it, it does not seem like it's the deck's moment right now. And I'm not really sure how things could swing back in its favor, just given what I expect to be important throughout the length of this format. I I think if like vampires takes over or something, then okay. maybe it has a chance, but yeah, certainly there's, there's the, the top tier of the metagame, which is like the decks that we've discussed. Although, you know, maybe not vampires right now because not a lot of people are playing it. So it's not something that you have to concern yourself with. So like mono white and is it, I, I would say are like the top two decks. And the rest of the format is generally a lot of stuff that is pretty good against mono green where, you know, we're talking about like actual mid range decks. Mm -hmm. uh, they're, they're usually the decks that are just like trying to beat up on mono green. And it's not like mono green has a ton of recourse against stuff like that, which is another reason why I like vampires just in general, because you have like access to two colors. You, yeah. You get to play a lot more stuff like that. If you ever, uh, if, if the format shifts and you encounter stuff like that that's like trying to hate you out, you have options. Like right. Soren's good too. Soren is like the card I have in my sideboard that's just like, well, this is sticky. for, for random sticky. crap. And yeah. I play against, you know, Esper and Demir Control and stuff a lot. And it's just, it solos them for sure. It's good. Good to have that in your arsenal. Uh, certainly a point in favor of the Vampire's deck. I, I guess that means it's time for the mid-range conversation. Uh. <laughs> look man like people are all about the mid-range life i see i see more mono black around i see more uh this orzov quote-unquote control deck i, I see demir mid-range with like cemetery not not the new cemetery stuff the old cemetery like grave thing. graveyard trespasser or whatever graveyard idiot yeah that that one and uh, I don't know what you think has changed where this is now tenable. It's not. You, you can't do this. Like it, playing against these decks when you have Holebreaker Horror, to say nothing of like, is it Epiphany, which some people are still playing, I think probably incorrectly. But even the theory that like these decks can challenge Holebreaker Horror because they have removal spells, they can't. You need to have such a pronounced clock to be able to do that. And, you know, these Holebreaker Horror decks are setting themselves up to be able to answer the clock presented by mono white, mono green, maybe now vampires. You really think they're going to be troubled by your Edgar Markov clock? 
like that's just not going to get it done it's not going to meaningfully change the course of the game and you can't fight them on a resource basis they will find ways to make your go blanks embarrassing when they're not backed up by really relentless pressure so i hate these mid-range decks and that gets to the core of my beef with this format it's it's the same problem we had before those decks are completely closed out to me that means we have two options you have linear aggro vampires mono green mono white or you have is it epiphany or hellbreaker horror and that is not a meaningful change to me like you yes you've added vampires in the mix you've added a different blue deck but it's still the same exact thing and mid-range has no place while these cards exist i think it's better but yeah not by much you think you think the format overall is better or, or you think the mid-range position is better both uh i would okay. much rather have the format be about hallbreaker horror than chaining time walks because man i, I there, thought so too there I really are, did look man there are a lot of wrinkles but at least we have the tools to actually do something about it whereas the epiphany stuff it was like either your deck is just naturally good against them or it isn't and in in this instance you're talking about like the mid-range decks, like say it's like the Graveyard Trespasser, Sedgemore Witch uh, type of like Demir setup against Is It Hallbreaker. I think that the Hallbreaker deck is certainly favored, but it's like trying to play Delver against Cavern of Souls Primeval Titan. You know, it's like it feels like you're at a disadvantage, but it's it's also possible for you with like some good deck building, some good playing to actually go under those decks it's it's hard you're you're starting from a disadvantage but it is it is doable at least you have a chance whereas before it just it felt impossible i'm glad to hear you feel that way uh for me thus far i have i've worked mostly on the whole breaker side of things you know we're only a week into the format so it's not like i have had time to explore absolutely everything i want to but you know if you're optimistic about it I, i'm just telling you that from the whole breaker side i feel so far ahead against this type of stuff that it feels laughable to me that I could ever contend but i'm going to do my due diligence i'm going to go back to it i'm going to look for ways to sort of like you said push a little bit underneath it and still stay bigger than these really good linear aggro decks right because the linear aggro decks are super good and the second you take your foot off the gas to have, you know, whatever threat you're banking on, something like Sedgemore, which, which, you know, you keep that around for a little bit. That's a nice sticky threat that should be challenging for a Hullbreaker horror-based deck to deal with. But the reality is if you tap out to play Sedgemore, which against your model green opponent, you've wasted a very valuable turn and you're not going to come back from that point. So you really have to find a middle point where you, you've got both the right answers uh, and the right threats, as traditional mid-range often has to. And I just think that needle is super hard to thread right now. Yeah, it's it's why I ended up on the extremes of vampires, because you're like, oh, I'm going to clock the control decks with Sedgemore Witch, and I'm going to maybe use it as this thing that generates blockers against aggro decks. But ultimately, you need like a bunch of disruption against the control decks or or a really good clock which you're just saying i'm not going to play because they're just playing all these like three mana like oh i get kind of value out of me when i die things which aren't yeah. enough and then against mono green it's just like the witch could just not be there because you're going to have to eventually win with like sweepers and card advantage right like the the witch is never going to carry you right, right. so for me it was like okay i can see how to deal with these two things the best way to do it is to take whatever clock you have and make it like super low to the ground and like as robust as possible. And I think the way to do that is to have like a, a nine, 12, seven curve, which is what I was doing with vampires. 
And I, I know that like you could look at it like, oh, if I just draw like all my dresses and go blanks against Hallbreaker and all my blood on the snow type of stuff against Mono Green, it'll work out. But right. it's way easier if you're just like, I'm going to play 30 creatures and some Inferno Grasps, you know, like that yeah. plan is way better. Yeah, that, that makes sense. And I understand how your thought process got you there. Uh, I, I think this whole situation begs some real questions about how you balance a format. Right, because so much of the complaint previously was like, "Oh, these mid-range threats are too good. They do everything. Questing Beast does everything, right? And anything like that, you are pressuring the control decks too efficiently. Aggro can't attack through it. Were people and mad at Questing Beast, or is that? Just I think some people were mad at Questing Beast. I think so. I mean, there was a lot to be mad about in that era. So, I mean, it, yeah, exactly. Like, okay, so Questing Beast is funny. It has a lot of text, right? But I don't know. I the card came out and I was like, is this even playable? I don't know, you know, and then started seeing play and I was like, oh, good for them. You know, I mean, do, does this format need more questing beasts? Is that is that the answer to fix something like this? Like those immediate threats that also play well on defense? Is that what's missing here? No, because I mean, we kind of have that with Chariot, right? And I, I think we could do without Chariot and just be fine. Okay. But yeah, I mean, I, I just don't think anything is questing beasts full. You know, I think generally questing beast is is the good guy that's the way i would usually look at it uh i, I think this is just an instance of like pushing a pole way too far in 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 my opinion and it, it, it's got the emerical flaw and that's just a miss and I'd, i hope that the format can still get to an interesting place around that that's that's all i can say i think the time walks suck and i think that upheavals suck and uh, Holebreaker Horrors in the upheaval camp. Different ways to suck for expensive blue cards. They, they really cover a lot of them. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that it is important for these control decks to be able to end a game for a lot of different reasons. You know, it's like you want to encourage them to play something that isn't just interaction or card drawing. And you want the games to end just for a clock management standpoint for real life tournaments. And because you're sitting Maybe more importantly ladder, right? I mean, I, th I think that's got to drive a lot of the decisions at this point. Sure. Yeah, that makes sense. And uh, you don't want the person sitting there who's just getting like absolutely destroyed by a control deck thinking like, Oh, maybe I'll keep playing. I have outs, you know? Right. So you want them to play like two copies of some big threat. And then it's just like, well, what do you want that to look like? You know, do you want it to be a defensive tool or do you want it to just be like this unbeatable end game? And in the case of Hallbreaker Horror, it's just like a little too good at doing all the stuff. Oh. And it's like not killable either. If, yeah. if you could play mid range, like, so say, say Hallbreaker couldn't bounce itself, right? In the, the situation you're talking about against White Black, where you like play it end of turn and they have a bunch of vanishing verses, it's like, I think that that's a good exchange. And that's, yeah, that's I, like, I would agree with you. Yeah, that would be like a good, reasonable play pattern. We're like, yeah, if this thing lives, it's awesome, right? But it's still very, very vulnerable to removal. I think that that's yeah. fine. That's the thing about magic cards, right? Is it's just like that one step too far can change everything. Yeah. And that's why you can never get bent out of shape about missing because the idea behind it is, like you said, you make that one adjustment and you get an interesting play pattern out of it and you just go a step too far and things start to feel real bad. Um, 
anything else before I bring us to what has in my head been the conclusion of this show for <laughs> weeks now? Uh, play, play more aggro. Okay. Play more Hullbreakers is my salvo. But now, like everyone has been waiting for, Jerry Thompson, if you were to rate this standard on a scale from 1 to 10, where would it fall? Six. Game. Good luck.